0: Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs.
1: Alberta by Dr. Robert Sutherland. Next week, if you want to drop by again, I think Dr. Rodriguez is slotted to give us a talk called Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays, so that should be a really interesting talk. Um, There's a suggestion box in the lobby in case you have any ideas or complaints, and I'm going to invite Dr. Robert Sutherland to back up to the stage to answer your questions. So we're just going to ask you to keep your comments brief and limit yourself to one or two topical questions. They come up here. Oh, at that mic over there. Um, No questions from the floor, but, yeah, we're going to get started.
2: Hi, I'm Henning Mundel. Thank you for your overview. Um, I realized you didn't really mention how the... uh, current donation, which actually Lukasik still announced the day he was being ousted, of 200 or 250 million. But anyway, and the consequence of that coming uh, mid-term and all that, but that's not really my question. My question is, you gave the uh, answers of the candidate uh, Redford in contrast to what you saw happening subsequently. I wonder, in your mind, to what extent... Is that just a reflection of the reality of the PC system in Alberta that she did not really realize that she would not be able to control or to what extent she changed her mind?
3: Okay, so I'm not uh, on talking terms with Alison Redford, so (laughs) I can't really tell you what... um, what she said, but but I was able to get um, the deputy premier to talk to me quite a bit, um, and I will say that according to him, Alison Redford was completely and totally behind cutting funding to the universities. Uh, this was not something that she was dragged into by Lukashik or. Doug Horner, this was something that she was fully supportive of. The question was, um, it, uh, this is according to Lukasik, so take it for, with, for what it's worth, was only how deeply they should be cut. And some people in cabinet thought it should be more than 10%. And Redford th- thought that 72 was more appropriate. But she was fully behind the idea that a message had to be given to the universities, that they could not be autonomous agents, that they had to (laughs) more closely align with the provincial conservative agenda. So I don't think she changed her mind. I think she may have been mistaken in how much influence she would have when she became premier over the direction in the universities. So uh, I've had a chance to read a transcript of a meeting she had with uh, university presidents and with boards of, uh, chairs of boards of governors, in which she oriented them to the letters of expectation that Lukashik sent out, and there was strong resistance and opposition that came from the universities to that agenda. So I think that... Had she been successful in influencing them at that time in the direction she wanted, perhaps there wouldn't have been a budget cut. There was certainly no necessity based on um, oil and gas revenues for it to have taken place in the way and at the time that it did.
4: Okay. Shannon Phillips, uh, I'm going to... uh, Well, first of all, thank you, Rob, for that um, presentation. And, uh, you know, I... I'm so glad that CAFA is in such terrifyingly competent uh, hands, and, and you're such a clear communicator. And I think that that's exactly what this organization needs right now at this kind of crisis point for universities. Um, I'm going to shock everyone by getting a little bit political. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, it, it, Alison Redford was elected on a promise that, uh, you know, she wouldn't be the Wild Rose, and they they terrified everyone into voting for them because people were afraid of the Wild Rose, and then what people got was a Wild Rose government anyway. Uh, a large number of people who who listened to her message of, of relative progressivity were the public sector unions and others, uh, for whom I work at the Alberta Federation of Labour, and... Uh, you know, that trust has been broken, those promises have been broken, and as a result, we've been doing things like taking out attack ads on television, calling her a bully. Um, And, uh, you know, this is... uh, uh, Essentially, we've thrown down the gloves. So my question to uh, uh, CAFA and others in the university sector is, what's the strategy from your perspective? Because that's what we're up to.
3: So... It's a good question. The, the notion that CAFA could do exactly the same kind of attack ads that you do, um, it, that would lead to my impeachment. Let, let's just say that. Uh, as as inclined as I am temperamentally to, to do it, um, that's not the will of the faculty associations in the province of Alberta. They have a notion... <coughs> that they can um, carry on a kind of um, uh, bicameral process where there is a nice face to negotiate with um, the, whoever happens to be the minister and to provide advice based on uh, information from uh, the academic staff in universities about the impact that their policies have had. And, and advice about what might be more sensible policies uh, for the government to embrace. At the same time, as aligning with student organizations uh, and labor organizations as representing the non academic staff to provide more direct opposition uh, to government policies. Um, but as an organization, <coughs> CAFA might be among the more conservative. Um, Uh, worker organizations in the province.
5: Uh, My name is Van Christou. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Sutherland, for a a very clear and uh, concise uh, summation of the problems uh, facing universities today in Alberta. I think it would be uh, remiss not to talk about the autonomy of universities. Uh, what's being challenged here is the, the autonomy of, of our, uh, higher, uh, our institutions of higher education. Uh, to most people, that doesn't mean very much. But uh, the reason for universities to exist at all in order to improve society is to give them a free hand to be able to determine what direction they're going to go in. Uh, once we start removing and eroding that autonomy of our universities... We've lost the essence of what higher education is all about. Uh, all of this uh, with the government we have in power today is uh, based on the dollar. Uh, they're going to try to streamline things. They're going to try to uh, remove the autonomy of universities to the point where they where they localize, uh, centralize, control, and where they'll have more control over the universities, and the universities will have less autonomy. My question to you, uh, 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 Rob, is do you think that, uh, in spite of, of, of the uh, fact that uh, Allison Redford uh, went back on so many promises that you, you pointed out, uh, do you th- not think that any government at the present time, with our having allowed corporations so much power, so much wealth, so much influence on all, in all our affairs that we've already let the horse out of the barn and it's irretrievable?
3: No, I'm not going to buy into the notion that this is irretrievable. Um, the fact of the matter is, let us let, just take um, one simple example. Um, one of the corporate agreements that I read uh, between a, a very large corporation and one of the universities, it was actually University of Toronto, uh, is a model for university integrity and, and autonomy. It clearly defined um, uh, academic freedom, the requirement that the university look after its own <coughs> academic decisions, the freedom of students to, to have access to data. Um, it defined rules around... Um, uh, financial conflict of interest and so forth. Um, it was actually surprising. It's a model of where an institution that has its own stuff together can actually enter into agreements with government or corporations and preserve the values that you've you've espoused. So I think it's possible. The, the, the game isn't completely lost um, at this point. I think that um, That there's a serious problem within universities in Alberta, for sure, uh, in that there's relatively little control within the university system that can be exerted by students and and staff. Um, The way that things have emerged in uh, in Alberta universities, and we're not alone uh, in this, um, central administrations uh, control the information that's provided to faculty and students and they control the information that's provided to the boards. Uh, and so the, the notion of collegial governance and board oversight has been lost, uh, or at least it's it's been dramatically weakened in this province. Um, so I think there's an opportunity to make changes where there's, an, there's then an ability of staff and students to look after the integrity of their own institutions. Uh, there's an opportunity there locally for to people to participate in regaining some of that kind of um, uh, public influence over these institutions, but you'll notice in Alberta when the cuts and the micromanagement became, uh, were, were in, in full flower, um, the university administrations became very quiet. And um, uh, really there were very few uh, oppositional voices that came from administration or boards in particular. And the one case that I know of where there was a board um, chair who spoke very clearly against the conservative government, that university was picked out for special punishment. And in fact, the Minister of Advanced Education um, said he was going to launch an investigation into their financial affairs, a great threat uh, to any university administrator. Um, So things are in serious jeopardy. and um, But I don't think the game is lost. I think there's some clear examples of things that can be done that can revitalize the integrity of the, the system in Alberta.
5: My name is Knut Peterson. Thanks very much for coming today. Uh, we've just recently heard about a $200 million investment in the University of Lethbridge. So are you, are you thinking that... Uh, government is quite willing to spend money on infrastructure and uh, down the road there will be strings attached to how that infrastructure is going to be operating?
3: So so I haven't seen any evidence uh, of any additional strings to infrastructure. And, and, you know, I'd like to make a point about this. $100 million per year was taken out of the university or out of the post-secondary system. Every year that's a loss of $100 million dollars. So when the province announces 200 million in uh, capital investment, that's a one-time expenditure. So um, you know it seems like a, a big uh, amount of money, but it is not the same thing as operating revenues for uh, u- universities. Um, one might ask, um, since this is really the only new infrastructure money that the Redford government has put into. Post secondary. All the other infrastructure money that's been announced is all old commitments that they're uh, now backfilling with these announcements. This 200 million is the very first new money. One might ask whether that was a reward. Uh,
2: I'm Trevor Page. I loved your expression, trying to read the tea leaves through a Bitumen bubble. I don't know whether you're referring to yourself <laughs> or someone else, but your presentation is very disturbing. I mean, universities have been where we've developed our thought for the last 3,000 years or more. Uh, to what extent do you think the information that you've presented today is known widely within the province and within the country? And do you think that any movements to change this situation are actually gaining ground or whether we're losing...
3: So, I think we're losing right now. So we're losing ground across Canada. Um, So this is not a local Alberta blip. Um, and, um, And we're losing in the ways that I've described. There are at least... Um, two uh, national campaigns around um, uh, the understanding of the, the value of universities and university research and the, uh, the creation and dissemination of evidence in democratic decision making. There's at least two um, national movements that have emerged very, very recently. Um, so I think there's very promising pushback against this trend. Um, but I think for the next little while, we're going to see more ground lost, um, uh, at least until we can um, change federal governments. Um, the, uh, the fact of the matter is, though, that in Alberta, I don't think the information is widely known. So I've spoken in a number of different places, and even some, most university people are unaware of the the uh, the breadth of the this trend um, uh, that, that's occurring uh, in the province. Um, so I think there's value in talking about this and in highlighting that this is um, these are resources for the public good that are being narrowly channeled for private profit. I think that theme uh, is not clearly understood. Uh, and It needs
0: to be said more. Kerry Shellington, thank you very much, Rob, for your presentation. It was a ruthless, uh, <laughs> knife-like analysis, <laughs> and not very politically correct, I suspect. Um, and that leads to uh, two questions um, that are at opposite ends of uh, some political poll. Um, uh, it, we understand that there's not freedom of speech around some of these issues, and that leads me to wonder whether... You face any kind of repercussions about trotting around the countryside um, uh, offering some of these grafts and this analysis that 's one question. The second is going back to shannon 's um, uh, comments about uh, political strategies, uh, I wonder if the university and its uh, folk don 't need to be a good deal more political and militant uh, than i 'm sensing. I heard your comment to her as chair of kafka but this i'm just asking you as a teacher in lethbridge and as a uh, one with colleagues around the province does the educational community need to be a good deal more political and militant than it is if this is going to get changed i hear your brave words about change but i know uh, we know from south africa and other places that change doesn't happen without some courage i don't say that self-righteously but just wanting to put the thing on the table
3: no i appreciate that comment and, and I think you're right. Uh, it, there, the little bit of opposition that was created by academic and non-academic staff and by students is responsible for some of the money being put back in. So $50 million were put back into the base operating revenues of the post-secondary system. That wouldn't have happened. happened at all if opposition hadn't been mounted. Um, so if this particular trend that we're seeing in Alberta and across Canada is to be halted, there'll have to be a lot more opposition developed. Um, no one has tried to muzzle me, except possibly some of the staff at CAFA uh, on occasion. Um, and I did hear from my own university administration that they would appreciate it if I wasn't so critical of Thomas Lukashik. That was given to me very indirectly and kindly. Uh, and was probably along the lines of you need to be more politically correct. Um, but no, I, I don't think that there's been any attempt to muzzle me or deprive me of my academic freedom. Hi, I'm Mark Sandy Lanz. Uh I've known you, Rob, since oh, <laughs> 1980, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, good job. <coughs> I've had a lot of Idea is buzzing around in my mind uh, in the past forty-five minutes, but uh, the one that emerges now is uh, in, in the cuts of uh, the twenty-thirteen spring budget. Uh, th- there were cuts in a lot of places uh, to disabled and, and uh, municipal grants and so on. Uh, where in the the uh, ranking of percent cuts to the cut to post-secondary education come, and if it's near the top, the highest amount. Uh, Do you have any thoughts about why? I do. So, first, uh, it may be the deepest cut of any of the sectors that I'm aware of. And the program involving disabilities received all their funding put back in, I believe. Um, So my my feeling about why post-secondary was picked out uh, I think there were two important pieces. One is the Redford government wanted to get behind the Harper-style um, using public funds to get development work done for companies. They they really wanted that to happen in Alberta, and the universities balked. And so I think that triggered part of the uh, funding cut. The reason it was so deep, the reason it wasn't 2% or percent. The reason it got to be as deep as it, as it was be, was because the perception was no one supported post-secondary, and certainly no one supports universities. That was the perception. And so when they were talking about, okay, we're going to cut post-secondary, how deep? I think there was no one in the room who spoke up for post-secondary education. No one in the conservative government said, no, that's going to hurt too much. So I just think that politically, the universities and post-secondary in general are not represented in this government.
6: Bev, Lyndall Atherstone. Like, like Mark, I too have known you for a long time, since you first started at the university, I think. <clears throat> um, I, I guess this is a rhetorical question rather than a real question with the increasing gap between rich and poor in terms of who can go to the university, um, it seems like in other countries there would be a revolution amongst the students. So, so it seems to me that a revolution could be coming at some point had, did, if we did not have the incredible um, possibilities for young people to go and work in the oil sands. So that's one point. The other point I wanted to make was about your iceberg analogy. And it seems to me that this would be a good thing to actually teach all of the people in politics is they, they, if they wanted to actually get more commercialization, they should put more money into research and then that they could skim that cream off the top. But by doing what they're doing, they're really cutting off their nose to spite their face. So um, I would suggest you go up to the Petroleum Club and speak to them up there. (laughs) Give them the same talk, explain everything to them um, with the iceberg model. So uh, I I guess my concern is that with their business ideology they really do not understand how universities work, um, how research impacts our economy, and that wonderful relationship between a great body of knowledge and the spin-offs that come from it.
3: Okay, thank you very much. Uh, I will say two things uh, about those comments. One is I don't actually think that, that they don't understand the point. I think they're well aware of the point about the iceberg model. So um, if you, I mean you have to look at things from a different time frame. So I mentioned the case of of the internet which there was great interest in great commercial potential that was understood from the 1960s. Um, and, and all of the original development for that was done by government funding. Um, it wasn't done by commercial investment, Uh, people were um, in that area were, were not able to see any profit to be made in the horizon, in the time horizon that they need to make profits. So if you're in the petroleum industry, let's say you're 55 years old, do you care about a product that will see no profit for you and your family for 50 years? I don't think so. At 105, even if you made a profit, you're not going to enjoy it. The time horizon is short for the people who have the ear of government. Um, People who are interested in the public good are interested in making investments that pay off in 50 years, in 60 years, 75 years. Um, Another good example, I don't know whether people pay attention to quantum physics, but, but I do. And um, in 1935, there was a paper written about a phenomenon called quantum entanglement. 1935, that's 87, 88 years ago. Um, And it was just two years ago that the first commercial product using quantum entanglement, it was a, a quantum computer. Was produced. The the company's not going to make any money off it, but but they actually produced something that they sold. So that is a long time horizon, and it is not in the interests of people in the Petroleum Club to fund that. It's in our interests. It's in the long term future prosperity of Alberta that we fund research in things like quantum mechanics or how the brain ages. Um, There's no commercial potential to that right now, uh, but I do know that in 50 years we'll be stopping cognitive decline through aging because of the things that are being discovered now that this government doesn't want to invest in. Um, And I'll point out about a revolution. (laughs) This is, um, these are data from the States, but the data are actually quite similar in Canada. This is the share of total pre-tax income in the United States going to the top 1% of wage earners in the U.S., and what you can see here, this goes back to the 1920s and all the way up almost to the present day. And this is the, the only time where we've seen a concentration of wealth at the top segment of society, comparable to what we're seeing now is in 1929. So I think we are indeed at a point of crisis.
1: Thank you. This will be our
3: last question okay,
7: thank you um, name's Mary Shillington. Thank you, uh, Rob, for uh, your talk. Uh, I said when you were done, well now i 'm more depressed uh, <laughs> but in the in a good way because uh, i 'm not a graduate from U of L but from Calgary, the Social Work Department, uh, with my master's but um, I when you said, in answer to one of your one of the questions here, that you didn't think people at the university level even knew really what was happening, that the staff and the students and so on didn't know that the information wasn't coming down through the the admin people and so on. So that really concerns me because I'm thinking there's so many people who don't really understand in our public, don't understand the importance of university, and they're getting the propaganda from Alberta government and from the federal government, and they're thinking, oh, why should we spend all that money on those those big wigs? You know, they're doing nothing really. So how do we get those people on board, help them, if we can't even get the students and if we don't even get the information out to the students and and the faculty and staff? So what do we need to be doing and what would you be recommending?
3: So are you a staff member at the University of Lethbridge? Oh, no.
7: I know. I'm a retired social worker. (laughs) Okay.
3: So, I mean, the fact of the matter is we have to work through our organizations, our associations, and political parties. There's really no alternative. So people who care about these things need to join their faculty association, their student association, and become politically energized and active on these matters. I don't think there's an alternative to that. Um, They need to write letters. They need to go to public forums and speak, ask questions. They need to, in as many public ways as possible, oppose policies that harm universities and other institutions that are there for the public good. Um, I mean, I I, I can't think of any activity along that line that I wouldn't recommend. Um, I mean, at the University of Lethbridge, The fact of the matter is that the Faculty Association had two positions on its main nominating committee that went vacant. So people who are concerned about this in the university need to step up and uh, actually participate in political activity in whatever forms they have that represent their interests that are possible. Write letters, absolutely. And letters.
1: All right. Well, please thank me. Please join me in thanking Dr. Sutherland again for his wonderful presentation.